0: Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow. I'm the pastor of Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of God's word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. Ago, as I kind of do in my quiet time, I love I love what I call dead men. Um, dead men are the guys who, though they though they though they are dead, they still speak. Um, one of these men is a guy named Charles Haddon Spurgeon. You've heard me mention him a couple of times, and I would encourage you that if you ever get the opportunity to grab a book that he's written, um, you would you want to do that. It would be it would be edifying for you. But um, one of the habits that I have is I like to read his sermons. Um, which if you, if you really want to see something humorous, drive by my house about 9 o'clock at night, 10 o'clock, you'll see me probably upstairs in my study reading a sermon out loud because sermons are meant to be heard, not just to be read. So I'm sure my neighbors think I'm nuts, but that's fine. They're, they're right. Um, but it, wh- while doing that, I came across a sermon that Charles Spurgeon preached on Easter. The title of the sermon was Spiritual Resurrection. And in that sermon, he essentially walks through all three moments that Jesus raises someone from the dead. There are three occurrences of that in the New Testament. Um, the first is the raising of Jairus' daughter, the second is raising the son of a widow, and the third is the raising of Lazarus, the one that we are most familiar with. very interesting sermon, a very interesting one, especially for an Easter Sunday. He even notes at the very beginning of his sermon, in his introduction, that he is going to preach in regard to a spiritual resurrection on the day that we celebrate Christ's physical bodily resurrection. The reason he did this was to show that the physical resurrection of Christ is something that essentially makes it possible for our souls to be raised from a state of spiritual death. And it's very interesting as he walks through this passage, as he walks through these occurrences, because the way that Jesus raises each and every individual from the dead is unique. He doesn't touch them. He doesn't ask them to do something unique such as as putting mud on your eyes, for they were dead. They were incapable of doing anything in and of themselves. He simply speaks to them. Each and every time he speaks to them, for Jairus' daughter, he says, says, little lamb, wake up. The gentleness in his voice. Little lamb, wake up. The The funeral of the widow's son, he says, get up, boy. I love that one. Get up. You can see, I mean, how he speaks, and, and when he speaks, something incredible happens, and the one that we're most familiar with is the story of Lazarus, where he looks and he's, he looks at a tomb of a man who's been dead for three days, and he says, "Lazarus come out." Simply in the authority of his voice, he has absolute ability to look at individuals who are dead. They are not dying, they are not sick, they are dead. They have no life in them. Essentially, what Jesus must do to bring them back to life is to speak to nothing and demand that that nothing come into existence, that that life which has been completely and totally removed from the individual, he demands it to return and death releases its grip. This morning, what we're going to be discussing is that voice. When I walked away from this sermon, I found myself just completely and totally enthralled by the authority and the power of the voice of the Son of God, that He can look at each and any individual in the midst of their death, demand that they live, and they will obey. So this morning, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 5. We'll read the entire passage that we walked through, half of it last week. We'll finish it this week. And so John chapter 5, starting in verse 19. At Mercy Hill Church, we love God's Word, and we, we love to honor it by standing for the reading of it. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I would remind you this morning that what we have before us is the only, only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. It is this book that we find ourselves bowing to, and it will lead us into godliness. So verse 19 says this, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has, met, for the father has life in himself, so, ha- so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment let's pray together father we are grateful for the reading of your word lord we know that in its reading we can rest very comfortably lord that the great truths of Scripture can come simply from hearing. We're reminded that believing comes through hearing and hearing from the words of Christ, Lord. And here we, here we stand gladly reading the words spoken of the true God, true man, our great mediator. So, Father, as we come this morning, may we marvel at your authority, at your power, and may we be humbled under it and gladly rejoice in it, Lord, that it has come to us. It is in the name of Christ and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So what I would like to do this morning is start in verse 24 and work our way down all the way to verse 29. And and I'd like to give you a sermon and a sentence. The sermon and a sentence is this. The voice of the Son of God has authority to give life. The voice of the Son of God has the authority to give life. Now, we're going to look at two moments that, that the voice of the Son of God gives life to individuals. We will look at it first and foremost in regard to spiritual life granted by the voice of the Son of God. Secondly... We will examine it in regard to the voice giving life to each and every individual who has ever walked the face of the earth. And in this moment that we'll see in verse 28 through 29, the moment where every single individual will be called again to physical life and will stand before their maker either for to be granted eternal life or to stand under the judgment of the one true, holy, righteous, just God. So before we get there, I would like to finish up to some degree the passage that we dealt with last week. So if you notice verse 24, it says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So let's examine verse 24 real quickly because there's an incredible news here. I mean, absolutely astonishing truths that we find all resulting from the fact that Christ is actually able to mediate our case. He is able to stand in the gap as the true God, true man, and he is able to reconcile ruined sinners to himself by his finished work. So what does that look like when it comes to the individual? So he says to this, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. I want to point out two things that are necessary for eternal life. Then I would like to kind of break down what eternal life actually means. First and foremost, we must hear him. We must hear him. We'll break this down a little bit more fully in verse 25, but but let's just examine it for a moment. I would, I would point out to you that there is a basic hearing of the Son of Man that each and every time we come together or every time you open your Bible, you have the privilege of enjoying. Don't misunderstand. We're not sitting around waiting for God to speak to us in some miraculous format. Instead, if you desire to hear God speak, then you open His Word. If you have an overwhelming desire to hear God speak audibly, read it out loud. The beauty of the Word of God is that every single time we open it, we are able to enjoy the hearing of the Son of Man, even the actual words that He spoke here below. But this is not exactly what we're looking at this morning, just the basic hearing. We're looking at not just a gospel call that we give to each and every individual we ever come in contact with. We long to give them the beautiful truths of the gospel that people might repent and believe. But this is not exactly what we're looking at this morning. Instead, we are looking at something a bit more unique. We're looking at what we call an effectual call. When God sends out his voice to the prompt, to the finished work of Christ, and the individuals hear, and their immediate response is then belief. The, the, the incredible thing about this passage is that we see both of these things necessary. First and foremost, they must hear the word, and secondly, there is a human response that must come about namely, believing him. Now, I don't want to go back and examine the basic understanding of belief too much, but I think it's important for us to understand that belief is not simply um, agreeing to intellectual truths. Instead, it is depending and relying fully on the finished work of Christ. It's looking back up at his work as mediator. It's looking back at the one who is truly God and truly man, the one who is able to stand in the gap for us and depending on it heavily. It's the idea of, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That is belief. It's where you refuse to lean on anything other than his finished work. That is genuine and saving faith. And so what does it grant to us? It grants to us this, eternal life, eternal life. Can I take a moment real quickly and just... I think when we come to this passage or come to any occurrence where we examine eternal life, our first instinct is to examine eternal before we examine that which it modifies. So consider with me that eternal can be the single most terrifying word that we have in the English language. Because it means perhaps if eternal is modifying some type of suffering, then all of a sudden eternal is that which brings us to our knees and tremble in fear before it. You see, when we come to eternal life, almost immediately we come to examine its longevity instead of its substance. You see, eternal life is not made in the fact that it lasts forever. It is instead made by its purity. Consider with me for a moment that in eternal life, the thing that we should examine first and foremost, the thing that should captivate us more than anything else, is the term life. What does this actually mean? Eternal life is that, is, is that grand privilege and treasure of the saint that he gets to, she gets to eternally dwell in the presence of the one whom actually possesses life. Eternal life is sitting under and in the glory of God throughout all of eternity. And friends, if life is not that, if life is simply what we have here below, because I genuinely think most saints actually desire for some reason the life that you have here eternally. I'm out. I don't want that. That's weak. Why would I want to enjoy the, 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 even though there are great treasures and pleasures here below, but why would I aim to enjoy them when all the more I know that sin is right at my door beckoning that I might run to it and flee from the glories of God? Friends, the life that is promised in eternity is not the life that you have here. It's infinitely better. It's infinitely better. It's free from the weight and the bondage of sin. Forevermore, you are free from temptation and trial and pain and are brought into a kingdom where sin is not permitted. And some of you tremble at that. Perhaps you consider, how is it even that we can live apart from sin? I would like to point out to you that that is a very clear indication that sin runs so rampantly in us that we can't even imagine a life without it. That's why that when we look into eternal life, we immediately think of the longevity instead of its purity. The life that God has granted to those who hear and believe is a life free from that which would ensnare us and keep us from our glorious high king. And so the eternal life he grants us is freedom. What is it freedom from? He continues on in verse, uh, in verse 24. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So the first thing I want to point out to you is you are free from judgment. Have you ever stopped to consider that day where you will stand before the omniscient judge? We would look at him, and he knows every moment of our lives. He knows each and every thing we have ever done and the motivations of them. Friends, if that does not bring you to fear and trembling, you do not understand judgment, or you do not understand yourself or the holiness of God. One of the three, very likely all of them. Can you imagine standing before him on that great day? I would ask you perhaps for just a moment, would you taste this with me? To stand before the high king of heaven, holy, the one to which angels gladly sing around his throne, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. And they never grow bored because his holiness is something to sit and admire and has been and will continue to be throughout the expanse of eternity. You will stand there on that day and perhaps you will present your case before him without a mediator present taste just for a minute what that would be like. Because if we don't for just a moment allow that to hit our souls then we are very likely not to savor the beauty of the next phrase. Judgment is something that we are free from because ultimately God has absorbed that judgment in Christ. A.W. Pink says it this way, did God sheathe his sword of justice? No. He sheathed it in the side of the Savior. That that which you were due was actually dealt with in full in Christ. Judgment has been paid. But friends, if you were in Christ, it is not something that you will taste. It does us good to consider that which we would endure apart from him. But friends, never allow yourself, if you be in Christ, to stay there because the next phrase is incredibly glorious. It says, but he has, but has passed from death to life. This is the life that God has promised you, a life that is free from sin. And even here below, I want you to notice the language here, the term is past, past. It is not something that we are simply looking forward to. It is something that we are currently enjoying and will continue to enjoy throughout the entirety of eternity. Friends, the beauties of the Christian life is it's not something that we wait for, at least in full. We are allowed to, by God's grace, taste it here for just a moment. Though the perfections are to come, the foretaste are very clearly here. Consider for a moment that it is the shadow that we see here below ultimately to find the fulfillment in exactly in the complete and perfect uh, provision that God has prov- provided for us in eternity. And so he has granted to us eternal life. We have passed. We are free from death that would lock us in and bind us to our our fallen state and would ultimately lead us into judgment. We're free from that and we have inherited life. That was the introduction. How does this come about? Have you ever stopped to consider how in the world do dead men live? I mean, look at this text. I mean, let's look at what it does. Look at what eternal, look at what the the, the voice of the one who calls. They hear our word. We believe in him. We're granted eternal life. We've passed from judgment. That's not to reign over us any longer. We're free from death. We've given life. How does this happen to us? Have you ever stopped to consider? Sometimes we, we look at these great truths and we never examine their means. Friends, this is the end and it is a glorious end. It's an incredible end. We get to enjoy the splendors of heaven throughout all eternity. Uh, I love what Ephesians says, that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. He's granted us eternity that we might forever enjoy his kindnesses. And friends, he needs that expanse of time that he might display them in full. Temporary, small gaps of time would never suffice to reveal the goodness of God toward those who are his. But how do we get here? And this morning what I would like to do is examine the means. I would like to examine the means first and foremost because I would like to, if possible, take a sword to our pride and arrogance, watch it die because it needs to. And secondly, I would like to do it because I want you to savor the freedom that is in Christ. And namely, not only the freedom that's in Christ, but the provision that He's made, an actual and perfect provision. Not a means to an end, but a means that brings about the end. It is actually going to bring about that which was intended. I would ask you this question, and, and, and perhaps it would be one that we could even answer audibly. That's not going to happen. I know it's not. Um, does God fail? And the answer should be a resounding no. Would you consider for a minute the folly of a God who fails? Friends, we don't call that a God. We call it a creature. So this morning, I would like to bring about, discuss the means by which we come to hearing the voice of the Son of God, the means by which we come to believe the voice of the Son of God, and the means by which we enter into that grand eternal life free from judgment. So notice verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. I would like to point your attention back up to verse uh, 22, I believe, um, and, and we'll look at that in just a moment. Actually, it's verse 21. We'll look at that in just a moment, but before we break that down, I want to point out a couple of things to you. First and foremost, notice the language in verse 25. I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. We've seen this this structure multiple times in this passage, and normally what it is is it's saying, Jesus is making the reference to the fact that that which we have been waiting for is now actually coming about in our current day and time. It is actually being brought to fruition. And so if you notice the language, it says this, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. So the first thing I'd like to examine is this, the authority in which God is able to speak to the dead. I would like to consider for just a minute that it is not the dead who possess the ability to hear. That is a stupid argument for me to make, even though I, because I know each and every one of you are aware of that. We go to, uh, perhaps you have even done this, you go to a graveside. And as you go to the graveside, you would stand there and you would speak to one who is in the grave Friends, as much as that is sentimental and we enjoy those things and we can celebrate great truths, they can't hear, they are dead. David Platt tells the story of his preaching class and in his preaching class, his professor Jim Shaddix invited them to the graveyard. And it was in the graveyard where he asked those in the preaching class to preach to the graves that they might live. And they all looked at him like he was nuts. And he said, this is what you do every Sunday. The intention is that we would preach the word of God. We, though, are completely incapable of bringing about conversion of individuals, but friends, the voice of the preacher is not the voice of the shepherd. When he speaks, he will bring about his end. And what we find this morning in this passage is the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear. And we know the dead will hear not based on their ability to hear, but on the power and authority of the voice of the Son of God. Friends, when that voice rings out, when it goes forth for the intention of whatever purpose it may be, know in full, hear me, know in full, it does not fail. It will never fail. When that word goes out, when it rings out, you can even look at this all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. I argue very, uh, to the best of my ability anyway, that Genesis chapter 1 is very, very clearly, and I think almost prophetically an illustration of what takes place at conversion. It is the voice of God that brings something into nothing. It is only by his sovereign hand and will that any life could ever be given to those who were dead in their trespasses and sins. Friends, we, each and every one of us, at one point or another in our life, were the individual who was dead. There was no ability for us to hear. It was in his sovereign hand, his authority, the glorious voice that spoke creation into existence was that which created life in you. This is what we call a spiritual resurrection. It was that which Spurgeon fixated on in that sermon, that the dead will hear. What an incredibly profound statement. You can even imagine the Pharisees, as they're hearing these things, they would question, is the dead able to hear? And immediately met with because of the voice of the Son of God. He is saying that he has the supremacy, that he has the ability to ring out that truth, and ultimately and immediately those people who hear will live. Now this is the next thing I would like to point out to you in this particular passage. It says the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. To what end then? The the dead will hear. They'll hear. Now what happens when the dead hear? Those who hear will live. Those who hear will live we point you back up to verse 21 now, if you would. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Son has determined that He would give life when He rings out that glorious voice to demand that people come to life. Dead men obey. That is the power and the authority of the Son of God. Friends, when we discuss the glorious things that we will inherit, passing from death to life, being free from judgment, inheriting a perfect life for all of eternity, all of those things can and will only be brought about should the voice of the Son of God ring out in your life. We call it an effectual calling. It is a glorious truth, and friends, apart from this glorious truth, not a single soul would ever enter into the gates of heaven because we all find ourselves dead in our trespasses and sins. We are by necessity incapable of doing anything, but the beauty is our salvation is not dependent on our ability to hear. It is dependent on the voice of the Son of God who demands to be heard, and he will be heard. It is by his grace. And for his glory that he rescues and redeems any dead sinner. Now, I will argue from verse 24 that it necessitates something from those who hear. Those who hear, there is something that will be brought about in them. Notice verse 24 again. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Notice, believes him. Those who hear by necessity then believe the voice that they have heard. They grow to love the voice that they have heard. It's vital that we understand this because, friends, the mark of the Christian faith is having fellowship, being able to hear and rest very comfortably in the authority of the Son of God. We know that to be perfectly exemplified in His Word, first and foremost, but secondly, it is the Spirit of God which indwells us that is the mark and the security that we are actually adopted as sons. And I would encourage you that should you not experience the coming to the Word of God and seeing it come to life through the finished work of the, through the Holy Spirit's regeneration, that I would argue that you are not a son or daughter. And I would encourage you this morning do not harden your hearts. Instead, would you consider that hearing in the word of the Lord that you would repent and believe and have faith eternally in Him? And so when we come to this, we see that the life, that the voice of the Son of God is able to provide spiritual life to those who are most dead, who are completely dead, and have nothing to offer Him at all. It is In Christ, through his voice, his calling, his perfect effectual voice that men live, apart from it, there is no life to be had. Apart from it, we find ourselves not passing from judgment, and ultimately, we will stand before him on that great day, giving account of our trespasses, and he will say with absolute authority, away from me, you evildoer, I never knew you. A dreadful place. However, friends, that voice still goes out. And that voice will continue to go out. And it will go out and it will be effective. That is the reason that we have confidence in evangelism. Friends, can I ask you, every time I go to any individual to offer them the gospel, I am a dead man preaching to dead men. It is by God's grace He's given me life. It's the voice that He has called me out to bring me into faith. And apart from that same voice ringing out, my arguments will fail. I don't have the ability to convince. I can't argue a dead man to come out of his grave. That's the beauty of the gospel. It demands that Christ receive all the glory. He is the initiator. He is the one who keeps and ultimately he is the one that on that great final day will be our glorious advocate and he shall not lose a single trial. And so we have this great hope in our evangelism that as we go out to preach the gospel that Jesus in his authoritative voice, his effectual voice will say, live. And they will do just that. Secondly, I would like to point out in verse 26 this. What is the life that we inherit? Verse 26 says this, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. Consider with me for just a moment the fact that the life that God, that the Son, the voice the voice of the Son of God is calling us to is life in himself. Not life apart from him, not life apart from the Father. The invitation of the voice of the Son of God is come and enjoy life in me. This is the major motif of Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. Everything that we find laid out in Ephesians 1 is the idea that from the foundation of the world, God has in His infinite grace placed people in Christ. And if we be in Christ, we will enjoy Him forevermore. It goes on to say that those who are dead in their trespasses and sins have been made alive together with Christ. They have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. It is in Him that we have life and life more abundantly. Friends, the gospel does not offer you any life apart from life in Christ. If your desire, if your love, if your affection is not bent toward Him, then you will not enjoy the life that is offered in the gospel. The gospel brings about not only the life that is provided, but will also bring about the affection for that. Because, friends, naturally, we are not predisposed to loving the things of God. Romans chapter 3 makes it abundantly clear. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. Friends, this passage in Romans 3 takes the head of man all the way to the toes and says, There's nothing in you that desires him. But at this voice, at this voice, that which is dead, he gives life to. And the saint loves and longs to only be in Christ and have that life. So it goes on, and I would like to transition then from the idea of life spiritually, that the voice of the Son of God is able to give, and then transition into the very last voice that the saint will hear and the very last voice that the sinner will hear. Notice the language that we find in verse 26, or 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. First, I'd like to point out to you as we transition that Jesus himself changes the language that he uses in regard to himself. He's been making reference to himself as the son of God. And then we see him change his language to say that he is the son of man. We should not gloss over this. Um, uh, my, my pastor, while I was growing up, said that the Son of Man was his favorite title. And when he makes this claim, he is essentially arguing that he has a unique authority to judge man. Friends, God has all the authority to judge man as he will based upon his own sovereign rule and reign and his omniscience. But the beauty of giving authority of judgment to the son of man is that he is one who sympathizes with our weakness. There are three major things we can consider from this. First and foremost, we consider that he is the apocalyptic judge that we find in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation. God has given him authority to do this. The Ancient of Days gives the son of man authority to judge. Secondly, he is the best judge because he is able to sympathize with our weakness. What a glorious thing, isn't it? The Son of Man would be able to sympathize with our weakness. Last week we spoke of His authority. Last week we spoke of Him taking off all the advantages of being God and coming and dwelling with man and perfectly fulfilling all righteousness. Friends, He knew and did fulfill perfect righteousness as true man. He sympathizes with our weakness. He knows our frailty. What a glorious thing that God would grant that to be our judge. But lastly, he is the Son of Man and he is the judge because he is the perfect revelation of the Father. There will be a day where these Pharisees will stand before him and they will say, we love the Father. I said, but you hated me and I'm the perfect revelation of him. You're telling me you love the Father but you hate his Son. That, it doesn't work that way. The very moment that I came, that I dwelt among you, you rejected me. I want you to notice that in John chapter 1, it doesn't say that they did not know him. It says they rejected him. Friends, these individuals who looked at the perfect revelation of the Son and said, "Uh, they will stand before that judge. What a day of fear and trembling. He is the Son of Man, and by that title, he will judge each and every soul. But I'd like to point out to you what this judgment will look like. Because here we see that second cry of the Son of Man. We see His voice has the authority to not only grant life spiritually, but secondly, that He will, by His, um, by His sovereign authority, demand that each and every individual that has ever lived be reunited with their body and stand in judgment. Notice the language in verse 28. He says, do not marvel at this, For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The first thing I want to point out to you is the very clear distinction in the first voice that goes out and the second. Notice the language in verse 25. It says an hour is coming and is now here. In verse 28 you see for an hour is coming. There is one reality in which we are living currently where the voice of the Son of God goes out and it gives life to whom it will. Secondly, there is a moment that is coming and that same voice will ring out not to a certain people but to each and every individual who has ever lived and he will, by his sovereign voice, demand that each and every soul be reunited with its body. Friends, let me make this statement clear. Going back to the idea of eternal life. From this moment forward, each and every individual will exist forever they will exist forever in a day and time where there are multiple authorities in the church, they're not real authorities they're heretics they would say that hell does not exist you deny the authority of scripture friends, the eternal punishment of hell is a reality and it is a reality that we should not take lightly nor should we for the sake of consoling ourselves emotionally, refuse it to be true ostriches may stick their head in the sand but a lion will still eat them and so when we come to this passage, we see this incredible moment. I can't even imagine the sight where each and every grave will be opened and all that are in the tombs, all that have died will exist once more. Their body will be reunited with their spirit and they will come to one of two things. First, for those who are in Christ, I would like to point out to you real quickly, uh, well, let me go ahead in at 29, and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life that each and every individual who has done good, it's important for us to note here that what we're looking at here is not the idea of a salvation by works. Instead, it is a very clear evidence of fruit. Ultimately, if you be in Christ, your only reaction, your only ability then is to produce some type of good fruit. Should you say that you are in Christ and you produce nothing that has its root in him, I'm going to call you a liar, not based on my own authority, but based on the authority of Scripture. Good trees bear good fruit. And it is, it is, we, we, we do ourselves a great disservice when we subscribe to the basic idea of a, of a, of a nominal Christianity, a Christianity that has life but no fruit. You cut down any tree that, that abides by the same rules. If it does not bear fruit, it is not healthy, it is not alive. And so what you see here is first and foremost that when that voice goes out, the good will be raised to, the new, to, to, to a life that will never, ever End. Now, the beauty of this is this will not be the first time they have heard that voice. This will not be the first time they had heard that voice. Can you imagine on that great day? You've heard the voice of the Son of Man. He had brought life to you. Not only had He brought life to you, but you have been enjoying Him all the more from that moment forward. Perhaps it is that you have passed from death to life Uh, perhaps it is that you have passed away here below and that you have entered into that state where we are awaiting that glorious day when Christ will return, but nonetheless you have been in fellowship with him. You know his voice. What a glorious thing it is to hear the voice of not the Son of Man who is coming to judge, but the Son of God who has ransomed you. That voice will be familiar, that voice will be rejoiced in, and when we hear it, we will celebrate. We will be overcome because our groom has come for us. We sing, even so come. My friends, what we are singing to come is that second voice resounding throughout creation that we might hear its sweet melody and dwell with him forevermore. That is the voice that we will hear on that great day, and that is the day of glory that we look forward to, that we celebrate, that we sing, even so come. But there will be a voice for many that will be heard for the first time. And on that day, that voice will ring out. Men will be reunited with their spirits. And they will stand before the judge who is indeed the son of man who sympathizes with, with their weakness but all the more is just, perfect, righteous altogether. That he knew that the creation had proclaimed had made it clear that there is indeed a creator, one who is able to save. They not only had creation proclaimed, many would have heard the gospel and they would have rejected it. They would have said, I am in no need, I am righteous myself. And on that day they will stand before him and they will defend his right, they will defend their own righteousness and they will find themselves wanting. For just a moment, pastorally, There are many of you, some, many, I'm ignorant, that this will be the first time you hear that voice, that currently in your state, this is the voice you will hear. And I urge you, repent and believe in Christ. For should you hear his voice here below, life will be had, and life that will never be interrupted Life that when it enters into the saint will be experienced forevermore until the day of this second ringing out. And on that day, it will not be a day of dread. Instead, it will be a day of consummation that you will enjoy all the splendors of heaven never broken, never removed from you ever again. You will experience it in full. And I urge you, friends, I I plead that none of you would be present under his judgment. Friends, he is the Lamb of God but never, never forget that he is the lion of Judah and he will crush those who rebel against him. A God of no wrath, as as R.C. Sproul said, is a make-believe God. Friends, if he is just, if he is righteous, if he is all the thing the scripture attests to, he will not stay his hand. Friends, he did not stay it in regard to his son. He will not stay it in regard to you. And so I plead with you this morning, repent and believe in Christ. His door is open. But for those of you who are in Christ this morning, would you fix your eyes there? The great problem, the great issue with the Christian faith is I think very rarely do we first and foremost enjoy the spiritual life that God has granted to us. He has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. He has transferred us from the kingdom of dark into the kingdom of light. And then the list goes on and on of the things that He has accomplished for us. And my friends, I would encourage you, live in that glorious truth. The Puritans had the idea of what we called vivification of the Spirit, giving life to the Spirit. Friends, the Spirit gave life to you. It will continue to sanctify you. Do not be foolish and neglect growing in that life that He has provided. And so I would urge you, first, live in that. Secondly, look forward to that. The great problem that we have is we very rarely look forward I love what Peter says in regard to this. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, if you have hope here below, you are not fully enjoying that which Christ purchased for you. Your hope is to come. The joys and the splendors of heaven are to come. Though we have foretaste here, they will be perfectly fulfilled. And my prayer is that we would look there and that as we do that, that all of the splendors of this earth may fade in the light of His glorious grace. And so my plea this morning, if you don't know Christ, repent and believe. It is in him that you have life. And for the saint, how can we not live in the life that he has provided? He has given us the ability, he has granted us life, he's has caused us to pass from death to life free from judgment and that forevermore we may look to him and celebrate his goodness and we are more concerned with celebrating the little trinkets that we have here than celebrating the glories of heaven. I ask you, I plead with you, repent of that and follow the one who has rescued you and ransomed you.